Practice does not make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. What you mean? This might seem like hyperbole, and maybe it is. But practice does not make perfect. Perfect practice is what makes perfect. What I'm talking about is deliberate practice. Deliberate practice is deliberate. And to avoid cliches, I'll try to define it. Deliberate practice is this process of putting forth legitimate effort, receiving feedback, whether that's in the form of your own self-reflection or looking at the outcomes like, you know, I'm trying to learn violin and it sounds awful, therefore it's not good. There's your feedback. Or if it's a mentor who's guiding your own performance. And then there's this recalibration and then putting forth more effort. It's a cycle. And it's constantly trying to drill down and grind away at the little minutia that makes your performance better and better. So, Jeremy, you're talking a lot about making your practice perfect. When was the last time you engaged in perfect practice? Mm, probably in training, to be honest with you. In medicine, do we frequently engage in practice at all, first of all, but perfect practice? Unfortunately, no. For my listeners out there, when is the last time that you have engaged in hardcore effort in trying to improve your skills in medicine, seeking out feedback, recalibrating your performance, and drilling down on that performance again and again? If you're like me, the answer is probably not that often. But who does engage in perfect practice? Yeah, I think the two areas that have us beat far and away in deliberate practices in sports and musicians, particularly high-level musicians, and then single-practice sports like golf. Yeah, I mean, putting all of this stuff down into a big cohesive whole, right? No violinist out there has ever just sat down and started playing a masterpiece. What they did is said, how can I play this G note perfectly? And they did that over and over and over again. And their mentor said, that G note is not perfect yet. Try again. And they recalibrated and did that over and over and over again. Isn't it funny that we know how to perform deliberate practice in sports and music, but in medicine where the stakes are way higher, we don't. Could you imagine if you were putting in an IV and you deliberately practiced how to put in that IV? What's the most perfect angle to enter the vein? What's the best way to get my catheter off of the needle? What's the best way to use ultrasound to find that vein and put in the IV? And drilling down on those pieces over and over and over again, you would be an IV monster. But who does that? Nobody. The scope of the problem is that when we learn a new skill, in general, this is in life, not just in medicine, we typically learn just enough to be competent. And competence, in my mind, is defined by no longer receiving negative feedback. So for example, mm. a competent provider would be able to admit a patient, get them through the hospital just fine, put in the right orders, get them home safely, no adverse events, no bad things happening, no wrong orders placed, no mistakes. Nobody calling you at the end of your shift. Yeah, saying nobody you calling you wrong. when you get home saying you did something wrong. That Com is the worst. Competence is, is the absence of negative feedback and the appearance of good outcomes. And so when we learn just enough in medicine and in life to be competent, our brains switch to autopilot. 
I think for many of us, if we are honest, 10 years of experience may mean that we have repeated one year 10 times, Mm -hmm. not that we've gotten 10 years better. And that's something highlighted by Scott Weingart back in one of his 2013 Smack Talks, where he talks about not everybody's going to be an expert. Not everybody is destined for expertise. And I feel like I need to put in a caveat here. I would not ever call myself an expert, but that's where my eyes are set. Hey, John, would you, uh, you consider yourself a good driver? Uh, yes, I am way better than most people on the road. And when you were learning how to drive, like way back when, so rewind like, I don't know, five years when you first learned how to drive. Oh, come on. More than that. (laughs) Were you really good or really bad? I still thought I was good, but I was probably bad. (laughs) Okay. And how did you get better? Drove a lot. Drove every day. And did you drive alone? Was there somebody with you? Uh, you got your parents teaching you how to drive. Got a driver's ed teacher, maybe. I did. Right. And so for better or for worse, you have someone who knows something about driving, taking a look at your performance, telling you you're going too fast or you're not looking over your shoulder. You forgot to put your blinker on. And through deliberate practice of practicing over and over and over again, you got better. You practiced and practiced and studied for your driving test and demonstrated your competence. No accidents, no missed turn signals, no getting pulled over. Right. I didn't have any cameras on my car either. And since you passed your driving test, Would you say that you have now achieved expertise in your ability to drive? I mean, not NASCAR level or Formula One, but better than most people on the road, yeah. Do you think other people feel like they're better than most people on the road? I think most people feel that way. They shouldn't. (laughs) Now the people I just drove past earlier today. I mean, I think the reality is that many times when we take our driving test and we fast forward 10, 15, 20 years down the road, It turns out that we are only marginally better at driving today than we were when we first took our driving test. Some of us may be even less so because we forgot some of the nuances of the rules that we once studied for. How does this correlate with medicine? So I'm just going to take your driving example and just drop that right into medicine because I think it is so accurate. We do a really good job in medical education of making sure that people are competent providers. And even in our private practice, we are really harping on competency, particularly for our new hires and trainees. You are not going to be practicing in many hospitals that I'm aware of as an incompetent provider. We're really good at providing each other negative feedback, so much so that we could probably get a lot better at giving positive feedback. But you're right. You reach this point in your career where you're good enough and you think that you're good People stop giving you feedback because you're not making major mistakes that affect that patient. And then you just kind of plateau. Now, if you have the internal drive to get better, you can absolutely still get better. But I see providers every single day getting stuck at that point of competency and just plateauing. So for all of our listeners out there, no matter your clinical role, if you're a nurse, if you're a respiratory therapist, a PA, a physician, paramedic, pre-PA student, everybody. I have a question for you. Two questions, really. Is competence your target? Are you looking to just not get negative feedback anymore? Or do you have your eyes set on expertise? Do you want to know everything there is to know about the things that you're going to be doing as a professional? If expertise is your goal, what's your plan to get there? Or do you have a plan at all? 
Let me ask you this. I think everyone is going to say that they desire expertise to that question. But do they really, if they're being honest with themselves, do you really desire expertise? And if you do, are you showing it on a daily basis? I think most of us desire expertise, but many of us don't want to do what it takes to get there. And myself included, I have a lot of outside work responsibilities. I have a family that I need to take care of. Where does work-life balance fit into the pursuit of expertise? Where does my own stress and need for rest fit into the pursuit of expertise? I mean, I think the reality is that expertise is really hard to obtain and we get tired, myself included. And so I have these four sort of reasons why expertise is such an unattainable goal sometimes and why we're so fooled into thinking that we're all headed in that direction. But in reality, you know, many of us are going to stop it at competence. So first off, how do we view experts? We have this unrealistic view of experts We have this view that many people who, you know, let's say are expert neurosurgeons or expert airway managers, they're just smart or they're lucky or they're talented or or they've had this crazy training. And in reality, many times that's not true. I think the adjectives that characterize them much more are things like dedicated or consistent or hungry. In reality, there's not that big of a difference between experts and us or experts and non-experts. Really? Are you sure about that? Except for small, everyday decisions that push them further and further marginally toward expertise, yeah, making the fake distinction that an expert is just way too smart for me and way too good, I'll never be there, I can never have that, it makes us feel better as if we will never have the opportunity to become experts ourselves. So it's like a coping mechanism. It is a coping mechanism. And this is actually described, if you're interested in further reading, we'll throw it in the show notes, but there's a book called Grit, and there's a similar TED Talk on it. I can't remember the author. Angela Duckworth. Angela Duckworth. Thanks, man. Who talks about this? Well, so since I beautifully demonstrated a couple of months ago that I was not super familiar with the thought process of marginal gains, how about you explain a little bit more about those, how those small everyday decisions lead to expertise? So the idea of marginal gains is that small improvements every day, so even if you just make yourself 0.1% better or 1% better at some small, minute thing every day, it's going to add up over time. It's going to make an exponentially larger difference in the outcome. So let's say that every day for the next year or for the next two years, you decide to drill down on all of the micro skills of putting in a central line. You say, I'm going to know everything about my needle angle. I'm going to know everything about how I hold the equipment. I'm going to know everything about how to troubleshoot this and troubleshoot that. And you just spend 10 minutes a day deliberately practicing getting 1% better at some skill of that procedure. At the end of that year, the total marginal gains of all those little improvements that you've made you're going to be a central line monster. Another way that Chad Case talks about this, our ICU director, especially with our kind of newer providers, is think about reading one article a day on just every weekday of the month. So 20 times a month. Take you about 30 minutes to read an article if you're just kind of casually reading it. By the end of the month, you've read 20 articles. 
track that out over a year times 12 months, that's 240 articles. Think about, just compare yourself to someone else who's not doing that. You just read 240 more articles than that person. So those small gains, 30 minutes of time a day, can really add up. Another example that we give people all the time is using your commute time wisely, listening to medical podcasts, listening to podcasts that make you better. Obviously, if you're listening to us, hopefully you're already on that train. We've got several people on our team who'd rather listen to sports radio or, or whatever they want. Totally understand that you need decompression time, and some people get that through listening to the radio or listening to Spotify or whatever. But if every day I'm listening to two podcasts, one going to work and one leaving work, and you're listening to zero, by the end of the month, I've listened to, what, 20, 40 podcasts? And you've made yourself that much stronger. Absolutely. It adds up. The second point is that all of us, myself included, I'm especially guilty of this one, we are hardwired to avoid the unpleasant. How does this manifest in clinical practice? One of the ways that we avoid unpleasant things is most people, I don't think, really seek out feedback on a daily basis. And if they do, they're not really digging in and really trying to get that negative feedback. It's unpleasant. No one wants to hear negative feedback about themselves. It's also hard to give honest negative feedback to another person. But if you start seeking it out, all of a sudden you make people more inclined to actually give you honest negative feedback, or if you want to think about a different way, constructive feedback to get better and then it becomes a normal part of your culture a normal part of your everyday and now you are getting better and when I realized that feedback was a crucial component to my own growth professionally and personally I really started to drill down on this and so I remember I would ask people for feedback and they would say things like it was good and that was really frustrating because I know that it wasn't good I mean it was competent perhaps but I wanted to know how I could get better I started phrasing my request for feedback as in uh, what could I do better or what did I do wrong other ways to seek out feedback is self-reflection Often, through self-reflection, we are overly positive. Classic example of this is, uh, I hate to keep harping on the central line example, but it's most relevant to me right now. If someone else, say another team, wasn't able to get a central line, my immediate response would be, oh, they don't know what they're doing. But if I couldn't get a central line, my immediate response would be, that was a really hard line. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's an inaccurate appraisal of my own skills. Perhaps it was me who could have been better at my central line skills at putting it in. What did I do wrong? What could I have done better? Really engaging in deep and honest self-reflection will hurt, but it will make you grow. The default, though, is to avoid that pain, to avoid that unpleasant question of your skills and abilities. We'd much rather be assumed as competent and not get that negative feedback. Right. I think we attach a lot of emotion and self-worth to things like that when we're self-reflecting. So sometimes if I, if I feel like I'm doing that, I'll make it very factual. I missed that central line. That is a fact. Now, factually, what are some reasons I might have missed that central line? And then once I'm at that point, how can I make that better next time? So if you take all the, try to strip away the emotion and self-identification in your skills, and maybe that will help. And I find myself doing this outside of medicine too. Uh, we have you know, plenty of disagreements in marriage, of course. 
And sometimes I'll find myself taking a step back with my wife and saying, I'm sorry, I didn't communicate that well. And when you're really able to dig down and reflect in a way that's objective and that doesn't have your ego all mixed into it, number one, uh, you can stop the fight and stop the irrational behavior that you're contributing to the situation. And number two, you can grow. I can become a better communicator. I can become a better central line operator. The third thing that makes the pursuit of expertise really difficult is time and effort. And in a word, we don't have enough time. We all have our priorities. And if you're telling me that I need to invest, you know, 60 minutes a day in podcast listening that I don't have to grow, that can be really hard for some people. One of the things I look at that, actually, when you were giving your central line example, I was thinking about that. Do I have 10 minutes a day? Yes. Should I devote 10 minutes of my day every day to getting better at central lines, which I hope my colleagues would say I'm competent at? Maybe, maybe not. But then I think people like to use the phrase, I don't have time. And that's just simply not true. We all have time, but it's, is it a priority for you? And should it be a priority for you is the better question. One thing that holds true is the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule basically says that 80 percent of the results are yielded by 20 percent of the effort and the final 20 percent that last mile problem the last little bit of trying to get that level of expertise requires 80 percent of the effort competence is much easier to obtain than expertise the final reason that the pursuit of expertise is so difficult is social proof this is a psychological phenomenon where people us We take on the actions of others in an attempt to reflect the correct behavior in a given situation. So said differently, it's where we're in an ambiguous sort of situation where we're not really sure what the appropriate behavior or culture should be. And so we assume that those around us possess more knowledge about the current situation and are therefore probably behaving appropriately. So we should just emulate everybody else's behavior. And so depending on what social situation you're in, that can only take you so far. If you're new to a group and that group is exhibiting competence, not excellence, if you are matching the group, you can only become competent, not mastery level, is what you're saying. It reminds me of the old thing that your parents said to you when you're growing up. If all your friends were jumping off a bridge, would you do it too? You know, all my friends jumped off a bridge when we were in Michigan, and that's the only reason that I did it too. So, yeah, I did that. That's a bad analogy, mom and dad. Yeah. I think Warren Buffett captures it well in saying the five most dangerous words in business are everybody else is doing it. I think the reality is that many of us have to recognize that most people, sometimes myself, and yes, you too, John, included, are pursuing competence for all of the reasons that we described. And so if competence is the norm, if we look to everybody else for the correct way to behave, the correct way to pursue mastery of skills, we will be misled into stopping when we're competent. The reality is that the road to expertise, what Scott Weingart calls the path to insanity, is lonely and it's difficult it's hard and it takes persistent daily grinding effort. And so I think we've done a really good job at painting the dismal road of expertise. Is there anything practical that we have for our listeners to take home and try to chew on? Well, I hope one of the first things that people will take away from this podcast is in it and just working on this podcast helped me frame the challenge differently. So the challenge is not to gain competence, but reframe it and try to gain expertise 
and certainly I don't think you can gain expertise in all areas of critical care medicine, for example, or pulmonary critical care or whatever you're doing, but you can seek out areas within that practice that you can attempt to gain expertise for. But if you're mindful that you're only competent, I think that changes how you approach things. Yeah, and I think that leads well into this idea of Galilean relativity. Of course, I had to bring some astrophysics into the mix here. You didn't think I was going to get away without a nerdy reference. Only but you, Jeremy. Galilean relativity uh, was one of the first principles that said there's no way that we can determine if the Earth is revolving around the sun or if the sun is revolving around the Earth. In reality, it all depends on your perspective. So how does this apply? I think we need to be self-reflective and realize that we may not be as competent as we think we are. It's all dependent on our frame of reference. We need to seek out feedback from other people who observe us in our clinical environments. We need to look at clinical outcomes of the patients that we see and be honest about whether or not we chose the correct action. And we need to enter this sort of state of metacognition where we really seek out the unpleasant, potentially negative feedback that's only going to make us better. Jeremy, I'm the best person at running codes at my hospital. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe if you ask the last nurse who watched you run the code, yeah, you knew all the right ACLS doses, but maybe you didn't communicate in the way that was best for him or for her. Maybe you could get better on your communication during cardiac arrest. And how would you know unless you were self-reflective or asking for feedback from that nurse? I'll say I don't actually think I'm the best person at running codes i'm actually i know that i'm not from seeing some of my teammates run codes but just because you are the best at your current institution at something does not mean you're an expert in it maybe it means everyone at your current institution just isn't as good at it as you are so definitely another practical tip is seeking out feedback we've already talked about this a little bit certainly you should be trying to seek out feedback every single shift and you can do that through asking your teammates and colleagues and peers but what about let's talk about seeking feedback from other sources mentors patient outcomes one of the things that i think is really really high yield and underutilized is this idea of shadow boxing so shadow boxing from a medical standpoint is sort of when we have the ability to watch a case unfold and watch how experts manage that case and so a great example would be if you had an opportunity to either be at the bedside or even on a whiteboard and have a patient case presented to you. And we could stop at, at each point in time and say, this patient comes in, saturations are XYZ, this is how they look, these are their labs, what do you think is going on? And we have the novice make their differential and their next workup and their intervention and then have them say what that is. And then at the same time, either next to them or maybe it already happened in story format, the expert tells their opinion and their knowledge. And then we advance the case a little bit more. Now the patient's on BiPAP. They're progressing to the point where they need to be intubated. What's your next move? Novice makes another commitment. And then the expert makes another commitment, maybe the attending physician. And at each step of the way, you get instantaneous feedback of, oh, I was way off. Like I thought it was pulmonary edema and it was actually XYZ. It's a great way to really put your own skills and abilities up against that of an expert. And as you do this intentionally over and over again, much like shadow boxing, you improve your performance 
in the little things, in the decision-making, in the thought process, and not just in the clinical outcome that, oh, the patient got intubated in both scenarios. Sounds like what you're saying is you need some interface with someone who's got some level of expertise in the area you're trying to grow. Like, let's say it's airway. How do you grow if, you're, if you feel like you're one of the better people at airway at your institution? Who's the expert you're shadowboxing with? That's a great question. I think the expert that you're shadowboxing with is maybe Murphy's Law a little bit, maybe a little bit of physiology. If it were up to me, I would film myself intubating and review the tapes myself or find an airway expert to tell me what I was doing wrong and what I could do better. You know, was my angle of my laryngoscope the exact way that it should be? How low did my saturations get? Did I notice my saturations were low while I was intubating? How long did it take me to intubate? Was it the first pass or the second? I think there are objective things that you can do if you think you're the best, which I don't, by the way, um, at something to really be honest and ask yourself if you're actually as good as you think you are. Right. And I think in this era of such interconnectivity, you can reach out and find experts or colleagues with similar passions to you online and social media or through conferences and connect or mastermind groups or however you want but find like-minded people who are on this lonely path of mastery with you and the final way that we can improve our ability to pursue expertise is actual practice i'm talking things like simulation which doesn't need to be high fidelity it can be as simple as two chairs and friends that you're working through a scenario with and practicing your decision-making and your diagnostics at the bedside. Or mental rehearsal, like we've talked about in previous episodes, thinking through what you're going to do before you do it and really asking yourself, do I know this or do I just think that I know this? When is the last time you engaged in perfect practice? Have you ever engaged in perfect practice? Is competence your target, or are you shooting for expertise? Reset your eyes with me, if you would, on a new goal, one towards mastery. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.